Beyond my imagination, more remuneration and reward than I could have fathomed. And yet something was missing. And I remember in that moment deciding that it wasn't okay to not be as fulfilled at home as I was at work. Hey there, I'm Mark Minter of First Person Advisors. Welcome to Human Resolve, the podcast designed for the unsung heroes of the workplace, HR professionals like you. Each time we gather, we cover the highs and the lows, hits and misses, and everything in between. Welcome back into Human Resolve. It's our second season, and we are delighted to bring you this second season here in 2021. I'm Mark Minner, President and Chief Strategy Officer at First Person, and I'm delighted to be joined by our featured guest on this episode, Martha May, who's the CHRO at Varsity Brands, and our good friend, Rebecca Ellis, who is the Managing Director for the Performance Lab at First Person. And uh, we're really excited to engage in this conversation. Martha, I know you and Rebecca have known each other. I'm trying to figure out how to become your best friend. Rebecca has <laughs> said she's your best friend. So we're going to see at the end of this episode how that plays out. But thank you so much for, for joining us on Human Resolve. Super. Thanks, Mark. Well, 2020 is in the books. Here we are with 2021. I can't imagine you had any challenges in 2020 being a CHRO of a company the size of Varsity Brands. But what did you learn... And what were your biggest takeaways? We'll start there when you look in the rearview mirror at 2020. We have an amazing culture at Varsity Brands. So for those who aren't familiar with what we do, we serve, you know, essentially the high school and college markets. Our intention or mission is to elevate the student experience every chance we get. So we do that through sport, spirit and achievement. So this was definitely a challenging year for us with students, not physically on school campuses and college campuses ways that they historically have been. What I would say I learned personally was just how amazingly resilient the human character is on all fronts. Our people, no exception. We had to take some pretty significant austerity moves. We put pay cuts in place. We eliminated our 401k like many organizations did. And unfortunately, we had to say goodbye to some some close colleagues as the business really necessitated us scaling back. And we did that so consistent with our culture and who we are and our values that uh, I'm so proud to, to be kind of leading and privileged to be leading this team. And we also made lemonade out of lemons. So we started doing virtual coaching clinics and virtual fittings and a variety of things that we had not historically done, but knew there was a, there was a market for even in normal conditions. And as a result, we, we found out that not only are our employees resilient, but our customers wanted to stay connected and wanted to stay engaged. And so it's been really a, a fantastic uh, learning opportunity for all of us. We're going into 2021 where kids aren't still all back to school or on campus. And so we're continuing to, to evolve as we need to, to serve the needs and to continue to elevate the student experience in the way that we do best. Well, let's go back to the beginning here, Martha, because if I would have told you growing up that this would be the position you were in, 
not just that there's a pandemic, but that you're in the CHR role, RO role for such a large organization, a widespread and important organization, you probably would have, I don't know, what would you have said? When you think back to your your childhood, what path were you on and, and, and what do you think you would have been doing back in the day? I wasn't one of those kids that kind of could point to the profession and say, I mean, my mom said I argued really well, so I should be an attorney, but the irony of that <laughs> in some, in some ways is probably the closest thing to it without passing the bar. But I play basketball, so I love team sports. I remember I thought I wanted to go to Duke. I watched the Duke Blue Devils play all the time. I did not, by the way. And those who are familiar with kind of ACC basketball would know it was almost heresy that I did <laughs> decide to go to NC State and graduate. I was Wolfpack. But I find that the, the linkage is around the team piece because whether it was in sports or even in the rare circumstances where we actually had snowfall in North Carolina, where I grew up, it was me that kind of rallied the troops in the neighborhood and we figured out how to build an igloo. By the way, it didn't work so well at the time, <laughs> <laughs> but we just put a sheet on it and kind of called it done. So I would just say, like, I love the ability to pour into other people and help them dream bigger than they ever maybe thought possible and realize those aspirations. So this is the perfect role for me. And I'm really loving getting to have the impact on kids. I have a 16 year old daughter who's in high school herself. So it's real relevant for us personally. You started out in the airline industry. So a little different than the industry you're in right now, but you held a lot of different roles as you got started as well at American. How did you get into the airline industry? And what was that experience like being able to navigate so many different components of such a large and complex business like the airline industry? So truth be told, I actually just wanted to fly for free. Well, <laughs> I didn't have the money to buy tickets. And my then uh, boyfriend was going to Auburn. So ironically, we broke up before my flight privileges kicked in. So I guess there was more to it because I stayed for 19 years. I would tell you that was probably the the best way to have started a company that believed in internal development, gave you opportunities that in so many instances I was not ready for, or certainly underqualified for, and they, and they taught you. And so in that 19 years, I had 17 different jobs. And Mark, one of the things that I often talk about when I'm mentoring others around their career path is how valuable it was for me to sit in the chair and in the shoes of my customer. So I spent as many times and had as many roles as a general manager or frontline supervisor, ultimately running Terminal B and then Terminal C at DFW, which if you're familiar with DFW, has its own zip code. It's large. It's large. <laughs> and so when you do that and then you come back to HR, those are your customers. And kind of having a chance to sort of sit in their shoes gives you a really different perspective on the job that you have to do. And so I think I've benefited and, and probably approached HR very differently as a result. Do you find, and maybe Rebecca, I don't know if you find this as well too, do you, do you find that people don't often have that perspective from the customer when they get into a role like HR where it's maybe traditionally thought of as more of an in internally facing role? I think it's definitely easy to lose sight of who your solutions serve. The number of situations where I've seen kind of HR in love with HR and not always as customer-centric, whether that be internal or external. And folks who are more accidental tourists, like, like Martha, like myself, my first <laughs> career was a, a teacher. 
I think sometimes there are benefits to that. And, and I do encourage folks I mentor who are early career, who've studied HR and, and dropped right into the industry to understand more voice of customer and really be embedded, which is why the HRBP role is also a good natural entrance. And I dropped in in a COE, you know, center of excellence kind of world and had to work a whole lot harder to understand what's going on in the business because you're not as embedded as naturally. Well, and interestingly enough, we invented for us at American during my tenure there, we invented the HR business partner role. So I didn't really get a chance to be in it. I led that team and had sort of the vision to create that connectedness because candidly, we didn't have it early on in my career there. And whether it's an American or, you know, there were several stops you had before you got to the varsity brand and a couple in the travel aviation industry. When you think about not just the challenge of understanding the customer, but also in 17 different positions in 19 years, working with a lot of different personalities, male, female, senior, junior, a lot of different dynamics that you have to learn how to navigate. What was that journey like for you to be able to not only navigate the, like, how do I understand the business, but how do I understand the people? How do I understand how, like, I grow my career? How do I navigate this complex organization? How'd you figure that out? Lots of listening and lots of mistakes, quite candidly. (laughs) (laughs) The best learning experiences were, were some of the moments where I got it wrong. Let me start by sharing that I tease people and say human resources is easy if it weren't for the humans. (laughs) If it were just the resources? Yes, exactly. Just resources, not the human part of it. Because everybody has their unique individual personality, preferences, style. Probably the best learning is I figured out what kind of leader I wanted to be based on what kind of leaders I had. And as I started growing in my scope of responsibilities, influencing skills became so much more important than, you know, domain expertise. That was important and kind of a ticket to entry, but more about how do you convince and and influence others' decision-making? Because in most instances in HR, the decisions really aren't yours. They're yours to influence, but they're other people's call, usually typically the P&L owners. And so that was a journey I was recently asked what one piece of advice you wish you knew then that you know now. Life is too short to work for narcissists. So I'll say that (laughs) because like if for these folks junior in the organization, like you got choices, do not work for people that are just not congruent with who you are and how you expect to be treated and how you expect others to be treated. Big broad world out there. There's plenty of other opportunities. That said, I've tried to at the at the end of each engagement, because at American, they were short since given the numbers of them. I tried to reflect on what about the, this person's approach can I take away and embed in mine? Can I learn and kind of take that tool and put it in my toolbox? And what do I not want to repeat? What didn't work for me or for the people I was supporting that I want to make sure I, I'm intentional about doing? By the way, I did that when I changed jobs, too. So this is a, a funny story. When, when I left American, because that's kind of my only gig, and you, you do not realize when you leave a company that you've been at that long, how much equity you have placed in your network. Knowing who to pick up the phone and call and just ask a question of, when you go into a new place, you realize pretty quickly how valuable that was where you left because you don't have it yet and you have to rebuild it and figure it out. I decided to do exit interviews with my direct reports when I left American. 
And I said, look, I don't get to decide your pay anymore. I don't decide your performance ratings, like shoot straight. What was great about me as your leader and what like, have you just not had the courage to tell me heretofore and there's no skin off my back. Like I just need you to be unvarnished truth. And I had one of my direct reports say to me, I didn't always trust you. I was like, wow, like that's, that's huge. Like trust is big. And I said, okay, almost a little tearfully and said, why? And she said, you always sold me on stuff. Like I felt like it was more for a different purpose than what you were necessarily telling me. And, and she used a specific example of when we rotated her to an employee relations role and why she felt like that was a sort of a backhanded compliment. And I, I so appreciated the honesty that I wrote her a thank you note to her house and then went on to my next job, which, by the way, was at a different company. Who ends up working for me again? <laughs> that same gal. And I think the combination of both asking and really being interested in hearing and doing something about it caused me to not only shift my leadership style, but for her to want to come work for me again. This is pretty cool. Yeah. And sometimes hearing those types of things, you, people don't realize the gift of feedback that that can actually help somebody so much, awkward as that might be, the impact that that can have. You also have, have talked to Martha about kind of the mentality you've had to have in that industry and some of the people you've had to work with and, and just experiencing sort of a don't let them see you sweat mentality as you've gone through and had to work with some different folks along the way. How, how difficult was that for you growing up in those organizations? And do you see other people that when you're mentoring them, trying to fight that and carry on a persona of what they've, what they've had? And I know it, over time, th- certain things have evolved, but not everything. And in not every situation. Yeah, particularly women, I think, have that. I once spoke on a panel around the imposter syndrome here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And I, I find it fascinating that there's some statistics out there around how much disproportionately women experience that versus, versus their male colleagues. And I, I found myself sitting in C-suites with all men for most of my career. It's just now beginning to evolve where I've got, you know, familiar, similar faces and, and, and it's still yet not anywhere near, I think, what we'd like it to be from a true diversity and inclusion perspective. That said, I went from American to Bell Helicopter, a part of Textron, and then ultimately to Rockwell Collins in Iowa. And both of those circumstances, you know, just very male dominated environments. I remember this distinct moment when we had lost the arm reconnaissance helicopter while I was at Bell. And if you're not familiar with kind of defense contracting, when you lose a contract like that, you have a certain, I think it was like 21 days before they stop paying those bills and those people or the bills. And we had 500 folks deployed to that program and they were some of our best and brightest people. And historically, you know, the easy thing to do is just like give all those folks pink, pink slips and say, sorry, the work's gone. But we harnessed the whole HR team and literally day and night for those 21 days, we basically looked at the entire 10,000 population and said, what 500 need to go? Not these 500, but the total 500. Some were on the program, but, but a lot were not. And I remember we had done all of that work with the business units and the leaders and the CEO had just returned 
And he came in and he was listening to the discussion. Look, there was a lot of resistance. Like, I'd much rather you cut those people over there versus my folks. And so there was a case being made in front of the CEO about why we shouldn't do what we had proposed. And by the way, I partnered with my legal colleague and my finance colleague and the team put this plan in action and then executed against it. And we had the list and we were ready to, to move. And he started unraveling. Like he started in the meeting kind of capitulating to the, and I remember, I think I might've mentioned this to you guys, but I, I'm one of those that kind of cries when I get angry. I don't often cry when I'm sad. I just get very tearful when I'm angry. And so that I can feel it rising up in me. And I remember like not being able to to speak at the point where he sort of let one guy off the hook that had a tremendous number of underperformers that should have been addressed long before this. And this was a nice catalyst for it. And I just stood up and, and left. I literally, I've never done that before in my career. I've never done it since then, but it was evidently really effective in that moment because I stood up left and kind of slammed the door when I walked out of the room because I just didn't even want to be a part of it at that point. Now, I do not advocate that for most folks because most cultures do not accept that approach. Ironically, the legal officer came in to the office about five minutes later and said, hey, whatever you did, it's working. Stay here. I don't care if you've stopped crying. Stay here for another 10 minutes because we're back on track. It was later that I realized, like, I probably could have said in the room what I needed to say now. I couldn't then, for whatever reason, I didn't feel safe. One of the things I've really appreciated about getting to watch you work your magic, Martha, is that that change leadership capability you've so well honed and that and authentic and vulnerable. And it's interesting you share your colleague brought up the trust factor, because what I see in the way that you build people up to really own and champion and be successful for what they tackle is remarkable. And I really do think one of your superpowers. And so how is it that you think that shift happened? I mean, the feedback was one piece, but what for you behavior wise has helped you become such a remarkable change leader? There was also another moment, same company. There was like, that was dog years for me there because I learned so much, but it was so painful when I think about how hard those lessons were and some of the best ones are. I remember it was 2009 and we were in the middle of labor negotiations. Unfortunately, we had the longest strike in the nation that year. You guys may remember it was not a good economic time. At that point in time, I pretty much spent at least half that year in, in embroiled in labor negotiations. And it was on a key point. The, at that point in time, the union was still having free prescriptions and nobody else on the whole platform. And on average, those employees were having 53 free prescriptions per year per employee. So you could see that the issue was a huge cost issue. I remember being so focused, Rebecca, on what success was defined as for me in that moment. And on the heels of all that, so fast forward, it was six months, it was tumultuous, it was painful for everybody, including those bargain employees. And yet I got feedback on the, I felt like I was doing what the organization needed done. Yet I got feedback from my then boss that the approach that I took was the wrong approach. I mean, he had nothing but criticism for me. And I remember it was the first time I'd ever gotten a performance review that wasn't exceeding expectations. And so I was just devastated. And I walked back from that performance discussion with my CEO and, and I, 
again, it's kind of, I could feel the tears welling up in my, and this was late. It's like 6.37 PM, you know, on a weekday in my office. So everybody, most everybody had gone home and I could feel the tears welling up because I just felt like I wasn't understood and that I felt like I, I was doing all of this for the organization. I lost a, half a year in my daughter's fifth year of life only to have received criticism and in walks my colleague who I probably had the lowest trust relationship on the senior staff with. And it was, it was a choice. I found in that moment, I had a choice to either continue to have high walls and mistrust with a colleague who was so crucial for the organization and my collective success or I could be vulnerable and real and start tearing down some of those walls. And it was a crucible moment. I shared with him the experience that I had. I shared with him why we had struggled to kind of see eye to eye and ultimately get to the best outcome for everybody. It's ironic because there were still moments after that, that I, that I imagined it would have been easier to just leave, just go somewhere else. I had plenty of job opportunities, search firms were calling me like, and then I remember a quote that I heard Marshall Goldsmith say, which is, you take you with you wherever you go. And I thought, there's something in this I'm supposed to learn. There's something about the way I approach this that needs to change in order for me to not have to make the same mistake again. And so I stayed and I, I literally drew a circle and described it to a colleague of mine later that like I could leave and go out and go around the problem, or I could go through it and be changed by it. And so only when I got through to the other side, did I feel like I was kind of released to take on and consider other opportunities. And that I think has been probably the most pivotal moment in my leadership journey that's caused me to think about the way I lead differently and the impact that I can have and the trust that I can build. And Martha, so much growth that you've had in terms of organizationally thinking about how you've changed as a leader in the workplace and how you've been able to influence others. As you've gone throughout that career, personally, what have you been able to learn about yourself just as you've lived your life away from the workplace? There's a lot to unpack there, Mark. (laughs) Where do I start? So I left Bell, went to an organization. It was my first publicly traded CHRO job, so got to another huge learning curve to jump over with uh, all of the, the experiences and, and regulations and comp committee and board stuff that you don't have when you're at a division like I was prior to that. Um, relocated my then husband and my daughter, who was eight at the time, to Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and just had a tremendous partnership with the CEO there. So this is contextually important. I remember being able to have really fast-paced, enormous impact on the the engagement and the culture of that organization, particularly given that it's highly kind of engineering-centric. And I got my total reward statement at the end of 2015. And I remember looking at that and thinking, never in my wildest dreams. I'm the youngest of three girls. My, my mom didn't finish college. My dad went to a two-year school. Like It just beyond my imagination more remuneration and and reward than I could have fathomed. And yet something was missing. And so as I've grown, one of the things that I try to do, particularly as we change from one calendar year to another calendar year, is do the reflection to say and set intentions about what you want to be true. 
because that's the only way you sort of move towards it. And I remember in that moment deciding that it wasn't okay to not be as fulfilled at home as I was at work. I'd made all this impact in the organization, felt like I'd really built great partnerships, but why did that same thing not feel like that at home? And so I made the difficult decision to separate from my then husband and only in doing that and kind of expressing that intention did a whole nother sort of set of realms open up for me to realize that since I was little, I've always been attracted to women. Like, and I never saw that as like a physical attraction. I always saw it as like a admiration until I met my now wife, who I realized it's the full picture. He's fantastic, awesome, incredible. And I don't think if I had not taken that step, that I would have ever even let myself be me. That it's always been there. It's always been sort of stuffed underneath the, the, the cover, so to speak. And part of it may have been just the church I grew up in and the friends that I surrounded myself with that it just felt like that wasn't okay. But fast forward a little bit, my, my, I'm one of three girls. My middle sister came out after two failed marriages to men and uh, she's now married to her wife. And so when I told my parents and the rest of my family, my brother-in-law of the oldest sister said, you have any of these feelings? <laughs> and she's like, nope, you're safe. So it's been really nice. I don't know that I would have done it at you know 18 like my wife did, but I'm so grateful for the acceptance and in particular for you know my wife's mom and my daughter's ability to kind of see the strength of our, our love and just what that's done to even further my authentic self in all relationships and all aspects of my life. How much of a, a weight was lifted there for you? Oh my gosh. Enormous. Someday there's a book in me parallels of that because if you can compartmentalize, which in some ways many of us learn at very early ages to do, you can hide that for a really long time, in some cases, probably forever. And if you don't see a picture of what it could be like if you didn't, it's sometimes too scary to just even entertain it. I, I went through this process beforehand every day for 30 days. I answered the question of what am I afraid of? Why am I afraid? What's the worst thing that could happen? And why is it okay not to be afraid? And when you do that and you break it down one little thing at a time, it's amazing how you can kind of overcome even huge things like that. Yeah, I think that's so remarkable, Martha, that that framework's amazing. But also the way that I see you valuing inclusion in, in thinking and doing and the change, obviously, but watching you and Tara both support that from a broader perspective has been just, again, a real honor for me to kind of witness. And and I do think people are more psychologically safe when they see people living that way, right? Yeah. I remember um, friending Beth Ford on LinkedIn and Facebook. She immediately accepted. You guys know who Beth Ford is. She's the CEO at, at Land Lakes, recognized as kind of out. She's one of very few at that level. It was a great 60 Minutes piece that she was doing. Oh, I'll have to, I'll have to look at that. She, and so like just commenting even on each other's photos, like it's just, it's like there's this, this whole influence you have, this silent influence you have that you don't even realize. What has that allowed you to do now professionally in terms of 
pursuing your passion around, you know, as, as Rebecca said, you and Tara, just DE and I as a conversation has been something that continue has continued every year, thankfully to continue to gain more traction, not the tra- as much traction as I'm sure we'd all like to see, but it continuing to gain more traction. This year has been sort of a catalytic moment in that conversation, even thrust further into the spotlight with so many things that, that happened in, in 2020. How do you feel like you are being able to bring that into the workplace, but also what ways do you see other employers? And and I, I know you use the example there of just kind of land of lakes and a large, a vi- highly visible organization, but just what are things that when you talk to your colleagues and, and peers in their HR roles, maybe not at a Fortune 500 company or at a, at a large organization, how can they play a role in helping move that conversation forward? I think the biggest piece of it is to have the discussion. Early on in America, we had, um, and they're, they're highly recognized. I saw something on LinkedIn today that they've been recognized for 100% equality score. I mean, it's fantastic. But it can't be another task. That's the shift that I'm seeing. It has to be a genuine, like you have to first create a, uh, an openness for a mindset shift to happen. And so that's happening in our company through dialogue and discussion. So we've had three or four sessions with the executive team, really accelerating the dialogue around inclusive. What does it mean to be an inclusive leader? Like we're not measuring you as, as oh, your leadership skills and then your inclusion skills. Like you have a responsibility and, a, and an obligation to be inclusive because we get the best outcomes for our people and for the organization and the communities we serve when we do that. So we started kind of at the top in parallel with engaging our people. So thankfully I'd brought on a, a gentleman on my team who, um, who has a really strong passion for DE&I and he's leading the talent and inclusion function in June of this year or this past year, he was able to help us accelerate and start up diversity and inclusion councils at each of the three BUs and then at varsity brands and he was just finished the January meetings yesterday and was remarking on our staff call how even the v- BU presidents are are sensing the shift, like the conversations have moved from obligatory sort of dialogue that maybe folks needed to have to just a genuine interest in in the per- differing perspectives. And I think that's what it's going to take for us to move from that place where we feel like it's a task to complete to a a way of being and it moves from mindset to education to engagement and and look it's a journey we didn't get here overnight it's not going to be overnight that we change it but it's one conversation one person at a time martha what do you what do you still want to accomplish oh so much i do want to write a book someday i feel like so many people have poured into my life i think about mentors like Marianne Sipperly, who literally helped me get my first, helped me write my first resume, helped me get my first interview. I now know that was her fiance that she had me interview with. So, <laughs> but people like that who saw me when I was literally a fleet service clerk and using lighted wands, bringing in airplanes part time while I was in college and said, This person has promise. I want to keep doing that in whatever capacity the universe decides to use me in. I want to make the difference that we can make at Varsity Brands. Like one of the reasons I joined this organization is not just because of our mission, 
around elevating student experiences and how relevant that was personally for me with a daughter in high school. But because those are the most, like all of us remember those moments in middle school and high school where you just wanted to crawl under a rock and die, right? Because of something that happened or something someone said. And so like those formidable years, if we can change the way that human beings interact and treat one another in that moment, in those moments, we can change the way the nation treats each other. Like we can change the world we live in. And so like, that's, that's what gets my heart all jazzed and excited about doing this work. That's a beautiful image. And um, I know, I don't even to speak for, I, I know that Rebecca knows you can do that, that you can be a part of that. Rebecca, what's from your perspective, working with a lot of different leaders, what's special about Martha's story? What's special about her as a leader? And what, what, what do you see the lessons from her journey being able to be applicable to other leaders earlier or even as they continue to refine their skills and career? Yeah, when, when she talks about mindset shifts, I think what's remarkable about Martha is how she influences change. And I think it's both in her what she does, but in the how, right? That's that's the difference maker. And if we could change EQ, emotional intelligence with just waving a wand at people, I mean, that would be some magic stuff, right? Really powerful. But the reality is we become who we are because of those experiences that you take you with you. Martha, I love that. I love Marshall Goldsmith. He, he drops amazing knowledge like that. But that's the piece of it, the how. And I think the way Martha shows up helps other people get that how to a better place and just optimize those things. And as a, um, a friend now of Varsity Brands and as a, a customer with a, a daughter who also gets to experience things from Herf Jones, like her graduation gown here in a couple months and her uh, state champ ring, which was fun to buy as a cheerleader, also deep in the varsity piece, I, I do see how their messaging that's getting past me as a parent to the student is making that shift. I see the seeds of it planted and, and I'm super encouraged because we need it and it's there if people just can take advantage of it. Thank you. You take you with you wherever you go. Great words. Martha, thank you so much. And I will be the first person in line for that autographed copy when you write your book. Awesome. I'm ready. I'm ready. Martha, thank you so much for joining us on Human Resolve. Rebecca, thank you as always. And uh, appreciate all of you listening to uh, the start of our season two of Human Resolve. Thanks so much for learning with us today. Did you enjoy the episode? Please share it along with someone you think would appreciate it. Subscribe and stay ahead of the curve with notifications of new episodes. Join the conversation and let us know what you think by tagging first person BA and using hashtag human resolve on social media. Oh.